Welcome to the RYR Endurance Team Podcast. We are grateful that you've chosen to tune in and listen. If you are a runner, aspiring runner, triathlete, or aspiring triathlete, you are in the right place. We love sharing what we know about these sports. If you like what you hear, you can always learn more by contacting us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or by visiting our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Well, good evening, Paula. Hello, husband of mine. Happy Easter. Well, thank you. Happy Easter. So today is April the 4th, 2021. And we had a fine Easter. It was a wonderful Easter. Beautiful weather. We had the whole family the whole immediate family together. We're still not getting the extended family together, which is a little disappointing. Yeah, hopefully soon. Yeah, hopefully soon. But I enjoyed having all four kids here today. And grandbaby Ellie Ann. Yeah, I was counting her as one of the four kids, but... Good point. <laughs> My math is not so good at uh, whatever time it is right now. Yeah, it's well past our bedtime, but we've had a busy weekend. So we traveled to Carmel, Indiana this weekend. It was a quick trip, too. We went up Friday. You and several others had awesome races, and then we turned around and came home. We did, and uh, we are standing up to record this podcast. And why might that be? (laughs) Because it's too painful to sit down and get back up. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't matter how many years you've been training or how prepared you are for the marathon. Marathon just hurts. It does hurt. But I would like to congratulate our athletes. They had a great weekend, I thought. Yeah. I would just like to congratulate Holly Mason on her first ever marathon. Way to go, Holly. That was exciting. And Kelly Powers on her 20th marathon. That's amazing. It's impressive. Because she started marathon running after well about the same time you did we started about the same time Mm -hmm. yeah but she really likes racing more than you do she really enjoys racing and congratulations to jacob roberts on an awesome half marathon yeah his first he did a half marathon when he was in college but he didn't train for it So I'm not sure where he got that idea. It's kind of like picking a half-distance triathlon for your first triathlon. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting blamed for this? Maybe. Mm -hmm. And then our daughter, Bethany, did her first ever 10K. Yes, she did, and came through with flying colors. She did. So overall, it was a great weekend. I think our next podcast, I think it's going to take me a little time to think through the race, but I think our next podcast will actually get into the specifics of the Carmel Marathon, just to kind of let our listeners know what that race is like and maybe share a little bit of my personal experience. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's get into today's podcast. Sounds good. So I was thinking today for our topic, we could talk about cycling as a triathlete. That's a great topic. All right. Well, let's just kind of see how this unfolds then. So I was thinking the majority of triathletes probably come from one of the three backgrounds, swimming, cycling, or running. 
You think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. That's definitely true for me and you. Well, I've been a lifelong runner and then came into triathlon later in life. Yeah, and for me, I started running later in life, but then transitioned into triathlon. I bet there are people who just start with triathlon, but it would be interesting to see the statistics on that. That would be a big jump to learn all three sports. It would be. But I'm glad you said all three sports because swimming, running, and cycling are definitely three sports. But guess how many sports triathlon is? I know the answer to this. What is the answer? It's one sport made up of three different segments. Right. So there's three disciplines that make up one sport. And I think a lot of times people misunderstand that. Obviously, there are three disciplines to triathlon, but each discipline has to be approached much differently in triathlon than if it were an individual sport. So that's kind of what I want to address today is specifically the bike portion of the triathlon. Because to me, that's where many of the athletes that we see and some that we coach really destroy their race. In most triathlons, the bike portion of the race is the longest portion, both by distance and by time. So I think athletes rationalize in their head that since the bike portion makes up the largest portion of the race, then that's the portion they have to win. Yeah, and as a new triathlete many years ago now, I've told this story before, but it's it's worth repeating that I did horrible in my first triathlon open water swim. And so I was determined I was going to make it up on the bike. And I made up a lot of ground on the bike, but I paid for it on the run. And what I thought was going to be my strongest leg of the triathlon, coming from a running background, turned out not to be so strong. But if you want to be competitive in a triathlon, you've got to have a strong bike split. But like you're saying, it needs to be viewed as part of the total event rather than a a cycling time trial. Agreed. I love it when a triathlete comes up to me and said, oh my goodness, I was doing so great in my triathlon. I had the most absolute bike, had the bike in my life, but then I just need to work on my run. I fell apart on the run. And of course, I just listen and I'm empathetic. But when they say, I had my best bike ever and I fell apart on the run, I want to go, "Mm, no, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) That may offend somebody. It probably would. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. There are a plethora of reasons for a run to fall apart in a triathlon, but overbiking ensures that you're going to fall apart on your run. Yeah, you have to remember that it's one event with three separate disciplines. Yes. So I thought it might be fun to kind of look at an example, and I wanted to use a half iron distance race. If you're new to the sport of triathlon, a half iron distance is a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike ride, and a half marathon, a 13.1 mile run. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting. And the half distance event is is long. You've got to have a plan. You've got to pace yourself, but let's work through an example. Yeah. So this is just a hypothetical race, and we're only going to look at age groupers in this. So in this hypothetical race, let's just say that the fastest swimmer, the fastest age grouper in the race, averaged 
A 105 per 100 yards. That, that's 65 seconds for the 100 yards. Yeah. And let's say the slowest averages 2 minutes 20 seconds per 100. So say you're swimming at 65 seconds per 100 and I'm swimming at 220 per 100. That's wishful. I'd like to get to where I was doing 65 seconds per 100. Yeah, and I'd be crying if I did a 220 per 100. But anyway, <laughs> this is just, you know, hypothetical. So in this scenario, you would come out in 19 minutes and I would come out in 41 minutes. So in this particular example, there's 22 minutes to be gained or lost in the field, in the swim. Got it. All right. And just for the sake of simplicity, we're going to ignore transitions. Let's just say we're just the same on transitions. Okay. Okay. So moving along to the bike in this hypothetical race, let's say that the fastest age group biker averages 25 miles per hour for the bike and the slowest age grouper averaged 15 miles per hour. That means the fastest biker would have finished in two hours, 14 minutes, and the slowest biker would have finished in four hours. So that is 106 minutes. 106 minutes difference between the slowest age grouper and the fastest age grouper. Yeah. So recapping in the swim, that's 22 minutes gained or lost. In the bike, it's 106 minutes gained or lost. So a lot more opportunity on the bike. Yep. So now onto the run. Let's just suppose the fastest age grouper averaged 545 minutes per mile and the slowest, which is likely going to be somebody who overbiked, averages 15 minutes per mile. So the fastest runner would finish the run in an hour 15 minutes compared to three hours 16 minutes for the one who had to walk. Got it. So in that run portion... That's 121 minutes to be lost or gained. So even though it's a shorter amount of overall time and distance, there's more to be lost or gained in the run. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And that's a, a great example. And that's that's what we see actually occurring as we attend half distance and full distance events. Yeah. So just looking at these extremes, the logical conclusion would be that if someone is averaging 15 minutes per mile on the run, that athlete is mixing in a substantial amount of walking. Would right. You, yes, that makes I sense. I agree. If an athlete is well-trained and ready to race, there are basically three reasons he or she would be walking on the run. Okay. Yep. So the first of those reasons, and there's definitely no fault or shame in this, there are athletes who actually plan to do a mixture of running and walking. There's actually run-walk strategies to running. Or maybe it's the athlete's first half-iron distance race and just finishing is the go, so they're happy with walking the run. Or maybe the athlete's injured and they can't run, but they want to continue doing the race, so they walk it. And it's the only option. So that's kind of the first reason. The second reason that an athlete might be walking on a run is because things aren't going well because they did not fuel on the bike. Either they didn't practice and learn how to do bike nutrition during their training block or for whatever reason they didn't implement it. So on the run, they run out of gas. You know anybody that's done that before? I've done that before. (laughs) 
But then the third, and this is the most common reason that a triathlete is walking on the run, is that the athlete overbite. Yes, that's certainly the biggest reason why people struggle on the run portion. And if somebody's seriously overbiked, just doing some quick calculation while you're talking earlier, if somebody has to walk the entire run portion of the triathlon, maybe they're averaging 20 minutes per mile, and for the half distance, that's four hours and 22 minutes. That's a difference of three hours and seven minutes from the fastest person to this person that walked the entire thing. That's potential gain on the bike of an hour that's offset by two hours on the run. It just reiterates that you have to have control on the bike portion to be able to run (laughs) and finish strong on the run. And that goes back to my, hey, I had a great bike ride, but I crashed on the run. No, No, you you didn't. didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, and just to talk about this a little bit in terms of a couple of races I've done, when I raced the Augusta Half Ironman, my first ever triathlon, I averaged 18.7 miles per hour on the bike and was a three-hour flat finish. And I followed that up with a two-hour and seven-minute or a 940 pace for my 13.1 mile run, which at that time, my fitness has improved greatly since that time. But at that time, my open half marathon PR was 159. So I thought a 207 was a great run for me for that day. It really was. So I ended up under six hours for the first half iron distance and my first triathlon ever. So I was pretty satisfied with that result. But I want to compare that a little bit later in the next year. I competed in a relay for the Southern Indiana Tri-Clubs half iron distance race. And guess what portion of the relay I did? Well, you don't have to guess, you know. I know you did the bike portion. Right. And since I was only doing the bike portion, my friend Liz Tullis was swimming and Kelly Powers was the runner for our team. Anyway... I went into that one completely differently. I shredded myself on the bike for two reasons. Number one, I knew I didn't have to run. But number two, I could only see one rider in front of me. And I was scared to death if I lost him. I wouldn't know I wouldn't know the course. <laughs> that was a really unusual race in that there really were no volunteers on the bike course. So you had to watch at intersections in southern Indiana. Not a lot of traffic, but still, you're going through intersections trying to go reasonably fast. But yeah, there weren't a lot of markings on the road, so it would have been easy to get lost on that course. Yes, it would have been easy to get lost, and you did. You had to come to almost a complete stop and yield to traffic at intersections. But even with the course being open and having to slow and watch for traffic, I averaged 19.8 miles per hour. You crushed it. So that was a total of two hour and 50 minute bike ride. So 10 minutes faster than my Augusta race. Now they were two different courses, but I thought they were pretty similar in difficulty. The biggest variable was the weather. The weather was much more challenging in my faster race because the heat index was well over 100 degrees. I don't 
know if you remember that day or not. You should remember that day you won that race. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> it was hot. Yeah. But my point is this. At the end of the relay, at the end of my bike leg, I barely managed to unclip from my bike. Once off the bike, my quads locked up, my calves cramped up. If I had had to do the run portion, I would have been lucky to finish that run in under three hours. So I would have traded gaining 10 minutes on the bike for losing more than 50 minutes on the run. Yeah. I want to revisit something you said. So your first ever triathlon was a half distance event. (laughs) What were you thinking? What was I thinking? I have no idea. There's so many ways that could have gone badly, um, but you're always one that's up for a challenge. You're very strong-willed also, but you pushed through and had an excellent result. For all those people out there listening, we do not encourage athletes to start with a half distance or a full distance. It's much better to start with a sprint or an Olympic to get accustomed to the open water challenges, the fueling, transitioning. Much better idea, but you made it. I was prepared. With flying colors. I was prepared. I had I had a good training cycle. and I mean, I was prepared fitness-wise. I probably wasn't prepared as far as that open water swim and the transitions. But it all worked out. Yeah. Augusta is nice because of the, the downstream current. So back to your Southern Indiana Track Club race. So you were on a relay team. Obviously, you were not doing a triathlon. You were doing a bike time trial. I was, yes. And that's the right thing. You did the right thing by pushing your limits. If you watch pro cycling, which I enjoy doing, you sometimes see riders who exceed their limits. And as they're coming across the finish line, they have to be caught and held up to keep from falling over. When biking is all you have to do, you can give it your all. But if you have to run afterwards, that's a really bad idea. I agree. So, Dean, just for fun, I did a little internet studying and research. You probably know these numbers, but I had to look them up. I pulled out, you've raced Ironman Louisville three times. Correct. I pulled up your two most recent races. I didn't go back to the third one because that was your first Ironman. I feel like you were just learning so much about everything on that one. But the second two, I pulled the data and I just kind of wanted to share it because I think it makes our point a little bit about overbiking and how it affects the run. So on your two races, your swims were fairly identical. You had an hour and four minutes on your second one and an hour five minutes on your third Louisville. That so sounds right. I do know you were a much faster swimmer when you went into that third one. So I'm going to guess the current conditions were more favorable when you got the hour and four minutes. But either way, the swims were pretty much a wash. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't remember the current being any different. Yeah. You were also in better bike shape for your most... That's for sure. For your most recent Louisville. However, you had a much better plan on how you were going to execute the bike portion. You actually were slower on the bike in the latter race. Your bike time was 5 hours and 23 minutes, averaging 20.8 miles per hour. In the previous year, you finished in 5 hours, 10 minutes, averaging 21.7 miles per hour. It's pretty good, Mr. Roberts. I remember when I 
first started training for triathlon, and so I was a new cyclist. I remember thinking to myself, will I ever be able to do 20 miles an hour for 112 miles? You did? Yeah. <laughs> I had my doubts as a, as a newbie. And what, this is an aside, a tangent that, that I don't, you probably don't find this funny, but I do. <laughs> You're making a face like, I'm cutting this out of the podcast. <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. And so you had, this was a year or two later, you had qualified for Kona and had been training for Kona. And we were probably a month out from Kona and we went on a local was called the Panera bike ride. We meet a group of bikers on Sunday morning. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? No. So everyone, I mean, there's probably 25 bikers lined up waiting and we ride toward them and turn around and I stop and clip out <laughs> and you stop and boom, <laughs> you forgot to clip out. <laughs> it happens to everybody. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. Every once in a while, you're going to fall over. Yeah, but it gave the guys a good opportunity to give you a little ribbon. Yeah. So, anyway. I, I can take it. You can. So, anyway, back to back to the point I'm trying to make. So, in your final Ironman Louisville, you were actually 13 minutes slower on the bike, even though you were in better overall bike shape than the previous year. The good news is, you know what triathlons are not? They're not bike races. They are not bike races. The finish line is not at bike dismount. But did that patience pay off for you? Did you gain those 13 minutes back in the run? Yes, I did. I gained that back and more. The run was much more enjoyable. Yep. It was much more enjoyable to spectate as well, I have to say. That's a lot of work, spectating an Ironman. It is. (laughs) So in your previous Ironman Louisville, with your five-hour, 10-minute bike finish, you completed your marathon in three hours, 57 minutes, and that was an average of 9.03. The following year, with your five-hour, 23-minute bike leg, you completed the marathon in three hours, 29 minutes, which was roughly a 7.58 pace. So you lost 13 minutes on the bike for a 28-minute gain on the run. Overall, you went from a total finish time of 10.21 to a total finish time of 10.09. We won't talk about your T1 and T2 times being slower (laughs) in that last race. So I can't really complain, though, because your T1 plus T2 was shorter than my T2. What I remember about the transitions that year in Louisville was that the temperature was pretty cool early in the morning for the swim and coming out of the water with those cold, wet, bare feet on the hard, rough concrete, felt like my feet were frozen. It was hard to move. That may explain part of the reason why my uh, T1 was a little bit slower, but it warmed up later in the day and it was a nice day. Yeah, but anyway, just learning to execute your bike leg, I think, is what really paid off for you and something that really helped you down the road qualify for Kona. Yeah, it certainly wasn't easy to hold back on the bike, but the the numbers support that it paid off on the run. It's an awful feeling, and I've been there, when you're 
running at the end of a triathlon and it's just hard to pick up your legs to go any faster. We, as coaches, we preach patience and consistency. We need to be patient throughout the entire event until the last few miles on the run. So that means be consistent on the swim and stay within your abilities. It means to be consistent on the bike, keep it in mind that the run is where the race is won. And then on the run, if it's a half or a full, it's a long run. You have to be patient early and then finish strong. But in addition to proper pacing, like you mentioned earlier, one of the reasons you may end up running poorly is poor nutrition. You really have to have a, a plan for the longer events and fueling on the bike is key. You need to test your plan. You need to stick with it. That's the best way to make sure you run well. Yes. So how does this translate into coaching and preparing our athletes to execute the bike portion in a way that sets him or her up for the best possible run? I can't simply go out and lollygag for 112 miles on the bike and then to expect to make it all up on the run. So we definitely have to find the right balance between how hard to ride yet still be able to run well. Yeah, definitely. The, the bike makes a difference when you're racing the clock or you're racing other age groupers and aiming for a spot on the podium. When we're working with athletes, we always focus on what the current capabilities are. We start there with an eye on where they want to be. We can't train someone successfully as if they're already at the level they hope to become. That results in overtraining and frustration. So let's talk about bike fitness. On the bike, we're fortunate we have more data to work with than we do on the swim or the run. On the swim, you've got the current, you've got bumping with other swimmers. In my case, one year, swimming over top of a sandbar. That was quite the shock. You've got swimming through seaweed at some races. And there are other challenges. You may have smart goggles. Did I tell you I was going to put those on my Christmas list? A few times you've mentioned that. So you may be able to monitor your pacing and heart rate, maybe even direction. But you, for the swim, you really have to go by feel to know if you're maintaining an effort that will not damage the rest of your day. And then jumping over the bike and talking about the run, you can monitor your pacing and your heart rate. Now, you may use a power meter on the run. That's not something that you and I have utilized yet, but that may be on my Christmas list also. Oh, boy. But on the bike. You can really focus on power and heart rate. Heart rate monitors are not always very accurate. If you don't have a power meter on your bike, it's a great investment if you have time goals or want to be competitive. I'm glad you said the phrase time goals. You know, an athlete can control and monitor so much on a bike. They can monitor power, cadence, and heart rate. And those really are examples of things that probably should be monitored. But here is something that should not be monitored. Speed, miles per hour. I listen to many athletes and even some coaches discuss what speed they want to average on the bike portion in a triathlon. I recently heard someone say that his goal was to average 20.5 miles per hour at a specific upcoming full distance race. Monitoring speed as a goal is almost a surefire way to ruin your race day. And the reason I say this is I'll just use myself as an example. 
there are days when I ride Sutherland. It's a flat, straight, four-mile road near our home. Depending on the wind direction and speed, there are days I may average 23 miles per hour in one direction and 16 miles per hour in the other direction, pushing the exact same power. So just imagine if my goal was to average 20 miles per hour and I could have very easily been cooking along at 23 or 24 miles per hour. I might be underriding in that portion of the race. On the flip side, just imagine if my goal was to average 20 and a half and the wind with the appropriate power, I should be going 16, but I'm just shredding myself to hit that mark. Yeah, monitoring speed on the bike. I mean, it might be interesting to to look at. It might give you some excitement to see how fast you're going, but you really shouldn't set your pacing off of speed. There's just too many factors that impact how fast you're going, and it's going to fluctuate throughout a race if you are going around curves and the the wind keeps hitting you from different directions. Yeah, and it's nice data to have afterward. I'd never have it on my display to see what my speed is because it's not relevant to what I'm trying to execute. But afterward, it's nice to see how my speed stacked up in my age group field. Yeah. So a power meter measures the amount of force you're pushing into the pedals to spin the chain, to spin the rear wheel. The great thing about monitoring power is it doesn't matter about the road conditions or the wind. Temperature is going to have an impact on your performance, and that certainly needs to be considered. But unlike speed and pace, power should be reasonably consistent if you're rested, similar to you were when you established your baseline power. And that's where you want to start, by establishing your baseline power. This is called the functional threshold power, or FTP, and it's measured in watts. Joule per second. That's right. (laughs) There are many different perspectives on what FTP represents, but the most common is a measure of the average watts you can ride all out for an hour. For this to be accurate, you would have to be steady throughout the hour rather than going out really hard and crawling in the second half. So establishing your FTP by riding all out for an hour would be really tough and difficult to maintain that consistency, and it would take a lot out of you. So there are FTP tests that help give you an estimate without putting yourself through a complete hour effort. If you're using Trainer Road or Zwift or other software applications for indoor riding, they have FTP workouts you can use. But to prepare for a triathlon, you really need to be outside on your race bike in the aero position. Yeah, I don't ever remember you giving me the option to do my FTP time trials indoor. No, we had our favorite spot picked out (laughs) on the west end of town, um, out near the Ohio River. Just some flat roads in the country that a lot of cyclists frequent, so... Any cars that would be out that way would be familiar. But we found a a good route out there that was safe. So we like to use a 30-minute time trial to measure sustained power and use this for estimating the power zones for different triathlon distances. And we call this the, the bike threshold power. So let me walk through the test we've used ourselves and have our athletes do to establish power and heart rate thresholds. So to start, we already talked about this briefly, 
You want to pick a route that's relatively flat or mildly rolling so you can maintain a steady effort throughout. It needs to be one with no intersections for the distance you expect to cover in 30 minutes. You don't want to be crazy like we were in the Southern Indiana Tri Half Distance Triathlon and race through intersections without slowing down. You need to find a safe place to ride hard. It's also best to pick a route that you could do occasionally throughout the year so you can use the same route again to measure your performance gains. You want to avoid a route that's going to allow you to let off the pedals and coast down a hill. So that, that brings up a tangent. Oh boy. There's another me- measurement related to watts that we need to bring up in relation to hilly routes, and that's normalized power. So with FTP, we're typically talking about average power, but normalized power, it's a measure that factors in the power surges, climbing hills, and the coasting downhill to gauge the effect on your body compared to your average power as if you were on a flat course or indoors. Normalized power is a good metric on a hilly route instead of average power. But back onto the topic. Is this a way to flatten the curve? (laughs) You're so funny. Flatten the curve. All right. Oh, boy. So now that you have a route picked out, you want to start off with a warm-up. You have to get your legs warmed up and maybe even a little bit tired. And you'll also be getting your heart rate up. So you want to warm up for 10 minutes easy, followed by 10 minutes at a moderately hard effort, but not all out. Then do five sets of one-minute intervals at what you think your threshold effort should be. And then you'll recover between each interval with an easy minute recovery. If you don't have any past data, then think about how hard of an effort you think you could sustain for the 30 minutes and do that five times of one minute each. Now you'll want to finish these intervals back at the start of your route so you have plenty of distance for the next step. So you'll want to take a short rest, reset your bike computer or your watch. Now it's time for the fun to begin. Time for the 30 minute time trial. This is an all out effort for 30 minutes, but it needs to be consistent from the start to the finish. If you shock the world in the first half and can't maintain throughout, then your results will be less than accurate. For our athletes, we provide a structured workout from Training Peaks. The workout will auto-lap after the first 10 minutes. We want to separate the first 10 minutes from the final 20 minutes. And if you're doing this manually, be sure to press the lap button after the first 10 minutes. To be safe, start a little bit easy and build into it, but ride it like it's a race. It needs to be hard. This is a serious effort. If you have done this workout before, you have an idea of the power you can maintain for 30 minutes. You have an idea it's going to (laughs) hurt. If you've done an FTP test indoors, a rule of thumb would be to start near that power output and adjust as needed to reach the 30-minute finish. Be sure the workout auto-laps or press the lap button to capture the precious data at the finish. Then do a cool down to start your leg recovery and lower your heart rate. And when you're finished... Celebrate. It's a tough workout, but it's great to get that data. And it's much easier than a 60-minute all-out time trial. It just makes me tired thinking about it. (laughs) Me too. I always dread when my coach puts this time trial in my training block. (laughs) You really shouldn't stress because the data is so valuable and it's key to effective training and later on racing. Do you remember the time when you were doing this test and I was riding with you? I seem to recall it 
your competitive side kicked in to high gear near the end of your 30 minutes. I don't know why, but for some reason I passed you near the end and you came buzzing past me like Peter Sagan in a sprint finish. Well, it really aggravated me when you came flying by. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's adrenaline or what, but I was like, oh no, he didn't. You've got a competitive streak. Maybe. But I'll say I was just getting even with you for all the times we've been on group rides. And you know I like to ride your wheel on group rides because I trust you. And I'm nervous in group rides anyway. So I like riding your wheel. But for whatever reason, I don't know if you do this on purpose because you like surges. Or if you just kind of aren't thinking about it for a few minutes. But there will be a nice... 50-yard gap between us and the group, and then you surge to go get them, and I'm dropped like a rock. (laughs) (laughs) All right, confession. Sometimes my mind wanders Mm. when we're out on the road, even Mm. in group rides. (laughs) I feel bad when I cause you to get dropped. Mm. That reminds me of another story, but we'll save that for another podcast. (laughs) All right, so back to the time trial. Now that you have data, what are we going to do with it? All right, can I interject something before we do that? Okay. All right. So I would like to add that as coaches, we consider the time trial that you just explained to the listeners, we consider that as a data point. So we don't ever use just one data point. But we take that FTP result and we compare it to all the other work our athlete has done because in a training block, there's going to be some hard efforts built in. So if that data does not in any way reflect what that athlete is capable of, then we'll make some adjustments to that data based on a bunch of data points. Most of the time, those 30-minute time trial data results meld well with the rest of their data. But there are a variety of reasons that the Data could be off. Maybe the athlete has had a lack of sleep, overall fatigue. Maybe there's an extremely high heat index. Or it could be as simple as maybe the athlete forgot to calibrate the power meter. Well, that's a great point. I should have mentioned that earlier. It's important to know how to calibrate your power meter on your bike. And really important that you do it before you start your time trial. Really, you'll want to do this every day before you ride so that you have accurate power data. And it's really important on race day to remember among all the other things, all the other details on race morning to remember to calibrate. Have we ever mentioned on this podcast how important it is to have a documented race plan? Be sure that calibrating your power meter and putting your bike in an easy gear are on your list. All right, so back to the time trial again. The whole point of establishing your bike threshold is to measure your bike fitness. Your bike threshold power is the average watch you sustained for the entire 30 minutes. And we can apply certain percentages to this value to estimate the effort you should push for different distance triathlon bike legs. So here we go. Get your pen and paper ready. We're gonna get into some details. For a sprint distance event, a rule of thumb is to target 5% higher than your threshold power or less. For an Olympic event, target no more than 94% of your threshold. For a half distance event, target no more than 90%
of your threshold. For a full distance event, such as a full Ironman, target no more than 75% of your threshold. And then on easy days, try to stay under 54% of your threshold. Which is my personal favorite bike ride. Easy rides. <laughs> so having data makes a world of difference. Now instead of going by feel, you can go by data. And there are some athletes who just love data. If you are feeling lousy, you may have to back off on the power. If you're feeling great, these percentages give you a top end not to exceed. So to recap, easy zone, stay under 54%. Ironman, stay under 75%. Half Ironman, stay under 90%. Olympic, stay under 94%. And Sprint, stay under 105%. And this is how I kept my Ironman Lowell bike under control and ended up with a great run and overall time. A bike threshold in 2016 was 247 watts, which meant using these percentages, I needed to keep my Ironman bike average watts under 185. Now, Ironman Lowell is a hilly bike course, so I was monitoring normalized power. In the end, I stayed in control and had an average normalized power of 174 watts. Comparing normalized power to average power, which doesn't take into account hills and coasting, my average power was 163 watts because I coasted as much as I could on the long downhills. Now these percentages are a good rule of thumb, but as you become a stronger cyclist, you may be able to ride at a higher percentage because you'll be on the bike less time. And that's the key. The more time you're on the bike, the lower that percentage needs to be. The less time on the bike, the higher the percentage could be. So on the flip side, if you're a weak cyclist, you'd want to be on the low end of the ranges to save your legs for the run. And again, we preach patience and consistency and knowing what you're capable of and sticking with the plan is the best way to succeed. But what if you don't have a power meter? You can use your heart rate as a guide, but it's less accurate. If you're going to use heart rate, a chest strap is a better choice. And we've seen cases, I've experienced this, where the chest strap slides down to the waist during the swim. It doesn't work well around the belly. But if it stays in place, it can provide data to help you control your bike effort. Yeah, I've never raced using power. I train using power. But on race day, I have always monitored my heart rate using a chest strap. And then I also monitor my cadence. So after a solid training block, you've always been able to establish for me a range that you want me to keep my heart rate between when I'm racing and then a range that you want me to keep my cadence between. So the cadence is kind of the control. Like I'm keeping my cadence exactly where it needs to be. If my heart rate is too low with that prescribed cadence, then I put my bike in a harder gear. If my heart rate is rising too high, then I put my bike in an easier gear. On a course like Louisville, my cadence was sometimes lower on the ascents, so I would still try to keep my heart rate in the correct range, even going up the hills. Yeah, that's not always easy to do. Even as you shift to an easier gear, sometimes those hills are just tough. Yeah, there were a few hills that my heart rate got out of range, but overall, it averaged out well. Right. So I think part of the reason why you focused on heart rate in Ironman Lowell was that your goal was to finish, and you wanted to stay with your friend Kelly. You were focused 
probably more on staying together without drafting than you were on going fast. Right. But even in my Augusta race, when I was really racing it, I still did the same thing. I monitored cadence and heart rate. Yeah. But you didn't have power at that time. True. Going back to the 30-minute time trial, the reason we separated the first 10 minutes from the final 20 minutes was heart rate. We take the heart rate average from the final 20 minutes to use as your bike threshold heart rate or your lactate threshold heart rate. So here comes some more percentages. The percentages are different for lactate threshold heart rate. They are, for an easy ride, keep your heart rate under 68%. For an Ironman, keep your heart rate under 83%. For the half Ironman, keep your heart rate under 94%. Also, for an Olympic, keep your heart rate under 94%. So those two are the same. And then for the sprint, keep your heart rate under 105%. So when I did my 30-minute time trial before the Ironman Louisville event you're talking about, Paula, my bike heart rate threshold was 169 beats per minute. Therefore, my heart rate average needed to be under 140. Well, as it turns out, while I was riding along on race day in Louisville, I averaged 137 beats per minute. Good job. So I used both metrics, both power and heart rate, to control my effort on the bike. And by keeping both in the right range, I was able to have a strong run. It's a great feeling near the end of an Ironman event to be passing people on the run, especially on the second half of the run, so much better than being passed and so much better than having to walk. As we work with athletes using training peaks, we take this time trial data and load it into their account and calculate these zones. This gives coaches and athletes a way to establish data-based workouts rather than perceived effort-based workouts. We often like to use rate of perceived exertion, RPE, with newer athletes, but once a foundation of fitness is established, we can arrange for time trials in the swim, the bike, and the run to establish a baseline of fitness to build on. Then we can challenge athletes based on their abilities. It takes hard work to get better, but working smart with data is the best way to improve. Yeah, and we also try to remind them that although this is the range we want you in, there are other factors like temperature, fatigue, and different things where they may not be hitting those ranges. And then we say, if you can't, that's okay. Just stick with the effort. Yeah, and and we also, we don't set up a workout with one single metric to hit. It's more of a range. So if it's a a power-based workout, there may be a range of 10 watts that we're looking for. Yeah, good point. So just remember, the triathlon is one event, it's one sport, but there are three activities, and there needs to be balance. you got to be patient and conservative on the bike. You need to have a plan and do your best to follow it. So with all of our podcasts, we like to share a scripture. Today's comes from Colossians. It's the first chapter, verses 9 through 12. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great 
endurance, and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. I love that scripture. We love praying for our athletes, and a lot of times we're praying for their health, that they are able to compete injury-free, but the more important goal is that they know him, love him, and serve him. That's the most important thing. So if you're interested, you can go out to Facebook and look for RYR Endurance Team, and you can join our group in that group. We sometimes post some tips about training, and then we also love to hear from our listeners. And you can even suggest topics for future podcasts. Or if you have a favorite scripture you'd like to share. We'd love to hear that too. Talk to you later. At RYR Endurance Team, we specialize in customized coaching. What is customized coaching? It's more than a training plan. It's a relationship. It's a partnership. So what are your goals? What are you training for? Contact us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or visit us on our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening.